I'm very excited to be joined today by Dr. Rob Henderson. He is a psychologist and writer about human nature. Rob grew up in California's foster care system and went on to serve in the U.S. Air Force. He then received his bachelor's degree in psychology at Yale University and his PhD at the University of Cambridge, where he was a Gates Cambridge scholar. He's best known for his research on luxury beliefs and social status, which we'll be talking about today. Rob, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Hey, thanks, Adam. Great to be here. A couple of years ago, you wrote an article titled America's Lost Boys and Me, talking about some of your personal story. What did you mean by lost boys? Uh, yeah, in that article, I wanted to point out the you know the the ongoing sort of deteriorating state of of a lot of young men a lot of boys in america and you know around that point that was there was a big piece in the wall street journal that had come out you know indicating that more and more boys were dropping out of high school college uh the the gender disparities in college graduation rates uh continues to to grow i think uh that article, the, the Wall Street Journal piece pointed out that something like 60% of college students are now women and that this is expected to grow over the next few years mm -hmm. uh, to the point where, you know, essentially two out of every three uh, college graduates are now women. Uh, the number per capita rate of incarceration has climbed. And, you know, some some people uh, will, you know, they'll hear that and they'll they'll think about sort of the the racial strife in America. But if you just look at white males in America, the per capita rate of incarceration has quintupled since the 1970s. And this is primarily in the bottom socioeconomic strata. So basically, among wealthy white males, uh, the incarceration rate hasn't really budged at all over the last 50 years. But among uh, the bottom 30%, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's multiplied by five per capita. So yeah, there's something going on in sort of working class, low income, poor communities, uh, you know, across the country, across all ethnic groups and so on. And so, um, yeah, I wanted to to discuss that and, and link it a little bit with some of my experiences growing up in the foster care system in California and, you know, discuss how you know, family formation and stability and um, parental attention um, in early childhood can be crucial to to you know, ensuring that a kid has a, a decent life and a decent trajectory. Uh, I pointed out, you know, some of the dismal statistics around foster care, around instability, single parent homes, and so on, and how it seems to differentially affect uh, boys in particular. So like the parental inputs, like how much care and attention kids receive, uh, boys seem to be especially sensitive to it, uh, such that they're, you know, if they have a two-parent home, with a, especially with a father in the home, they seem to experience, you know, pronounced benefits from that relative to girls. And if there's, uh, and if there's uh, only one parent, or if they're raised by a grandparent, or you know, someone other than their biological parents, the way that I was, uh, then their likelihood of success is is much worse than girls in the same circumstances. And this is something that I noticed too, like when I was growing up, um, that you know none of my male friends in high school went to college. Um, I was the only one who did, but I did it through a sort of very indirect, um, you know, it took me, it took me a while. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't go to college till I was 25. Uh, so it took me a little bit to get there, but none of my male friends did. Uh, but some of my female friends did, they were in the same circumstances. They were raised by single moms and kind of had that same uh, disordered, you know, environment and upbringing, but some of them did like manage to, to go on to college. And I find that interesting. So anyway, yeah, this is all to say that, you know, the lost boys idea was about, you know, what's going on with, with uh, young males in America. 
I'm going to set up two extremes, recognizing that the truth must be somewhere in the middle. So on the extreme nurture side, you might say something like your life outcome, whether you go to college or not, whether you're successful or not, entirely depends on the neighborhood you were raised in. So the advantages or disadvantages you had starting in early childhood. And on the other side, you might say something like genetic determinism. People who succeed despite their disadvantages are just built different. And mm -hmm. maybe you are someone who overcame these disadvantages because you got lucky on the genetic lottery, or maybe it's like entirely willpower. And it's an interesting question where those interact, like to what extent is something like conscientiousness uh, something that you inherit or something that you can develop over time? Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I know this is this is the Nature Nurture podcast, yeah. <laughs> right? So um, yeah. Uh, the, that question is something that I've thought about. So, so I have a book coming out next year. It's a memoir where, where I discuss that question, um, quite a bit trying to, you know, like it's impossible to disentangle all of the forces that make someone who they are, like how my life ended up being this way versus all of my friends and how they ended up in a different way. I mean, it's always going to be both. Right. But one, uh, one thing that I've, I've discussed in, in some of my essays on Substack, um, you know, there are certain, certain, what, variables, certain traits that are uh, responsive to environmental inputs and others that are less so. So something like uh, cognitive ability or academic ability, uh, you know, beyond a sort of basic, uh, you know, basic uh, environmental uh, level, you know, once once the schools are kind of stable and once you have like a you know, basic level of nutrition and sustenance and intention, you know, there's all the research indicates that you know iq can't really be modified very much at least in developed countries um but there are other things like conscientiousness uh and a lot of the personality traits that are more susceptible to environmental change and variation i mean you know, like a simple example like with iq the test retest correlation across time you know that's something like 0 0.6 0 0.7 0 0.8 right around that area but for personality it's around 0 0.2 or 0 0.3 so personality is much more variable over the lifespan than IQ. And I think a lot of that is, you know, some of it is aging and hormones and biology and all of that. But I think a lot of it, too, is just the kinds of people that you're around when you're old versus when you're young and the kinds of environments you find yourself in. And so for me, you know, there's I was always kind of a curious kid. I didn't do well in school. You know, at, at one point, you know, when I was in the foster homes, I took an IQ test and scored you know well below average. And part of that was because I was moving homes every three to six months and like, you know, changing schools all the time, foster siblings coming in and out of the home, uh, just like, you know, a very, very chaotic and unstable environment. And so, you know, in that kind of extreme um, uh, situation, it makes sense maybe that why why th those tests weren't like indicative of of my underlying potential. I mean, this is something that mm -hmm. Scott Barry Kaufman, the psychologist, has pointed out that. You know, there there are a lot of ways someone might or like there are a lot of reasons why someone might score low on an IQ test. But, you know, if, you, if someone scores high, it means, you know, they're probably pretty, pretty intelligent. But if they score low, it doesn't mean that they're not intelligent. It could also mean right. that they're in a, you know, a, a very severe situation or they're malnourished and so on and so forth. Um, and so so that's one point. Uh, the other is that, um, you know, at, at least from my point of view, it, it, it wasn't really worth it. Um, in that, like, essentially, I, I think that, 
having having a sort of a stable and decent childhood is a good in and, of, in and itself and that when we talk about like oh kids from these kinds of homes or you know low-income families the kids are less likely to graduate college or more likely to do this or less likely to do that i think like that's that's all good and it's it's useful knowledge but i mean the real reason why it's bad is because of the subjective phenomenological experience of the child going through it and so if you ask the kid like you know why are you you know and a kid in that environment like why are you stressed or why are you sad or whatever they're not going to say like oh because you know this dropped my likelihood of graduating college by 23% and increased my likelihood of being incarcerated by 15 you know they're not going they're just going to say like like i'm sad because like you know, my parents never pay attention to me, or I'm moving schools all the time, or, you know, I, I, I don't know, like, you know, if, if um, you know, my stepsisters, you know, like, all of this stuff is going on around them, drug use, gangs, all of this stuff. And so for me, it's like, you know, we, we should pay attention to this, not because of, um, you know, we shouldn't be focusing, I should say on like, oh, are these environmental inputs, the reason why kids are doing well or not doing well, it's, it's, you know, we should be focusing mm -hmm. on how to make their lives, lives better, regardless. The other thing. So, so, so finally, so, so in that, in that piece on the lost boys, I talk about incarceration rates. So I think that it's, it's probably unlikely for my high school friend group that they were, they were ever going to go to Cambridge or Yale. Uh, even if, like, if you had met me at 17, you would have said that about me either. But like, you would have mm -hmm. like, yeah, this kid's not going anywhere either. But they probably weren't going to. Um, but, but I have two, two out of my five friends went to prison. Um, they may not have gone to Yale, but I think if they had had a different kind of life, different childhood, different parents, different home life, they probably wouldn't have gone to prison, right? Like mm -hmm. there is like, you know, you're, there may be a ceiling on your ability, but there's also, you know, kind of a floor on where you might end up depending on your environment. And for them, I don't think that was, um, a sort of a set in stone genetic determinist thing that they were destined to be incarcerated. I think they could have lived a different life, you know, maybe not in the Ivy league, but, but not also in like the sort of the bottom of society either. I latched on to the lost boys idea because I was something of a lost boy myself. It wasn't as street as extreme as your circumstances, but I grew up with a single mother. We were poor. Um, and, very far removed from the elite academic circles that we currently find ourselves in. And uh, it, I noticed that my behavior as a lost boy was still very different. So in psychology, we have this internalizing versus externalizing symptoms model of psychopathology. So like you could have mental health issues and be depressed or anxious and you just keep to yourself. Uh, and then you could be aggressive, take excess risks, uh, externalizing that way. And it, it sounds like the, from some of your personal experiences you talked about, it was more of an externalizing, like getting into trouble thing. And for me, I just did nothing but play video games. I didn't have friends. I was overweight and overcame my circumstances later by starting to treat life as a video game, like realizing the effort I'm putting in, you know, you some of these online games, like there's a big grind. You have to put a lot of hours into like leveling up or whatever. And yet all of the benefits you're accruing from that effort are virtual. And it suddenly hit me at one point, like, why am I investing time into virtual improvement and not real self-improvement out in the real world? So that was what did it for me. Um, but your your story was quite different. You talk about it was the military that helped enforce that like added external structure that helped you improve. Yeah, I mean, the military is a unique environment because um, 
it basically forces you to not screw up your life. I mean, that that is a big part of you know success. I mean, there are certain things you can do to be successful, but there's a, a much longer list of maybe things you shouldn't do. <laughs> and mm-hmm. the military inhibits all of that. I mean, especially early on in training, like basic training, tech school, like all that sort of the, the, the first like year or so, every aspect of your existence is tightly controlled. And I mean, you can like you can screw around and do like if you fail a drug test, you can do drugs if you want, but then they're just going to imprison you like, you know, it's literally in like the what the, the uniform code of military justice that if you fail a drug test, mm-hmm. like there's some number of uh, like the sentencing for that is like, you know, you go to prison. And so that knowledge of like, oh, like, you know, I can't just screw around and maybe I'll get caught. Maybe I won't like in the military, you're going to get caught. Like everything is just very cut and dry. Do this. This happens. And so that was a good environment for me to sort of what like get the stability and the structure and the predictability that I lacked as a kid. And yeah, it took me a long time to mature. Like, it, you know, I had to I had to spend those years in that tightly controlled environment and, you know, be around people who were thinking about themselves and their future and the sort of peer group effects. That was really helpful, too. And yeah, yeah, it's I mean, it's uh it's interesting because I, I I don't know how old you are, but I'm guessing you're 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 you know a few years younger than me at least. And I I played some mm-hmm. video games as a kid, but I look at how good video games are now, and I could imagine like if I had been you know if I was what 16 years old today, seeing like Fortnite or whatever these games are now, like they're so interesting and appealing. I mean, th- th- we had the Xbox 360 when I was in high school. And, you know, that was fun. And that was sort of like, I think maybe the first console in which like the games were really like pretty close to realistic. The graphics and uh, everything was really, really fun. But it it didn't like quite permeate the culture the way it has now. Online gaming Mm -hmm. was just becoming a thing. Like, I don't think Call of Duty and all those games had come out yet. You know, I graduated in in two thousand seven, and yeah, that that stuff was just kind of taking off. So I'm, I'm actually glad in a way that I missed right. the sort of the rise of online gaming. I missed um, like the smartphones. Like smartphones didn't come out till I was already in my twenties. So I was like twenty, twenty one when I got my first smartphone. So I'm glad like those formative years. It was like the last era in like American childhood or life or whatever. Where like you know it was like. You didn't spend it on your phone or on a computer. You, you. I mean, I don't know if this uh-huh. is any better, honestly. But like the internalizing versus externalizing of like, you know, trying to like find yeah. a guy in a van to sell you weed or something is like, I don't know if that's better. But in a way, it was like more more exciting uh-huh. or more interesting or something. So, yeah, anyway, I, I yeah. was gonna ask you what predicts whether if if you're this lost boy, whether you're gonna be the troublemaking type or the type that just sits indoors and is lazy. And and I guess it's because it wasn't much of an option. If you go back more than yeah, yeah, there's like yeah, environmental so. effects, right? Like I think there's they're probably like just what are your options? You know what options are available to you? Even something like like uh, um, access to drugs, right? Like the the rise in um, uh, adolescent opioid addiction is because they have access to it from their children or from their parents' medicine cabinet. Like there was a study on this. Uh, I think from 2013 that found this, that, you know, the sort of rise in adolescent opioid addiction was simply because kids were going to the medicine cabinet. Oh, here's some opioids like that addiction wouldn't have occurred without that kind of access. Um, and so, yeah, but but there's probably personality trait variables, too. Right. Like I'm relatively mm-hmm. low on agreeableness and you know, pretty high on openness. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah I don't know. Maybe was, I think I was like the 60 
third or something percentile. So okay. you know, slightly yeah, I, higher I think than we average. share the, the disagreeableness and the high openness, but I'm quite introverted. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Introversion probably does, at least among men, probably predicts or males predicts um, you know, like likelihood of, of getting into games and and those kinds of things. But I, I mean I like again, I like the games too, but it just they just mm -hmm. weren't as exciting as they are now. Okay, so you finish your service, you get to Yale, and you experience some culture shock. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean the the shift from, you know, being in a in a relatively conservative environment, conservative not just like politically, but just like culturally, right? Like everyone wears the same uniform to work. You know, if you're a, a male, you have to have like a very strict hair, like the, the haircut regulations, everything, right? Like it's just um that sort of conformist environment. And Yale was conformist too, but just in a different way. Um, and so, yeah. At, and the other thing is like, you know, the, the, the kinds of people I grew up around. So I grew up basically like poor to working class, right? Like the town I grew up in the median household income was $27,000 a year. I think, you know, my, I lived with different families at different times. So it's hard for me mm -hmm. to say like what the, but it was, you know, it was not, you know, it was around there. And then the military, the, like among the enlisted, you know, the enlisted group, it's, you know, probably like lower middle class is the, the, the norm. And then at Yale, you know, there's, there's more students from families in the top 1% of the income scale than the entire bottom 60%. And, you know, some of these, some of these Ivy League schools, you know, they like to say like, oh, you know, something like half of our students are on financial aid. But most of these rich schools, you know, Yale and Harvard included, you know, I think if your family earns less than $65,000 a year, they give you a full ride scholarship uh, as an yeah. undergrad, at least. And so it's like, oh, your family makes less than $65,000 a year. $65,000 is still the, above the, the median income in America. So it's like, you know, basically you're middle class, but a lot of these, oh, you know, I'm on financial aid. It's like you're middle class. Um, mm -hmm. So there was the sort of class shock. And then there was the kind of the, I guess like the, the, the cultural shock, the kind of not just in terms of the income, but just in terms of like discovering the the different kinds of lives they had. You know, again, not just mm -hmm. income, but I've told this story before about how, you know, I was in this class once uh, and the, the professor administered this anonymous survey. Uh, and it was a the class was called something like psychopathology of the family or something. Right. I was a psych major in undergrad. And the, the, so there was an anonymous, you know, anonymous responses. Uh, the professor revealed the, the results on, on the PowerPoint slide. And it was, you know, out of 20 something students, there were only two that were not raised by both of their birth parents. It was me and, and one of one other student. I don't know who it was. Um, and that, that like floored me. I'm like, wait, cause I expected it to be around wow. half maybe. Uh, cause for me, it was like everyone uh, that I grew up with, you know, the number would have been, um, you know, like, like a hundred percent of us were not raised by both of our birth parents. But in this environment, it was like 90 something percent were. And that was the first inkling that I got that like, oh, there's a, like there's like a, a family differences, cultural differences, the early life experiences they had. All of this stuff was so different. Um, I mean, part of part of my shock was like even even from like pop culture, right? Like even if you watch movies and TV shows of, of rich people, there's like divorce and cheating and all this stuff going on there, too. Mm -hmm. But in actual sort of upper middle class and upper class people's lives, like they get married and they stay married and very few of them divorce. If you look at the statistics, something like only uh, like like 10 uh, percent of, of college educated women uh, uh, get divorced in their lifetimes. And it's something like 60 plus percent among among high school only.
So, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a major sort of class disparity there. Um, and then, yeah, that was that was also when I started to um, develop this this luxury beliefs idea was uh, you know shortly after my my arrival at Yale and. Yeah, yeah, I saw the I saw a lot of a lot of like student protests and anger and um I was confused by a lot of it. it. Took me a while to to really understand it. So luxury beliefs, what is that? Luxury beliefs I define as ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. And you know, essentially, you know, there there are multiple parts to this, but you know, I've written several essays outlining this idea that in the past, uh, the well-to-do in society demonstrated their status with luxury goods, with their material goods, with, you know, top hats and evening gowns and tuxedos and delicate and restrictive clothing. And you know, it's sort of like uh, visibly, you could tell who was rich 100 years ago. Um, you know, if you walk around New York City 100 years ago, you could easily tell who had money and who didn't. Whereas today, that's it's it's less true. Luxury goods have become a noisier signal of one's social standing, and so the you know the 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 elites, the affluent members of society, have sort of solved this this problem, this desire, because they would like to signal their status. They they now do it with their ideological fashions, with holding the right sort of sociocultural, sociopolitical uh, opinions on various issues of the day. And yeah, they demonstrate this by, um, you know, if, if if conventional opinion is X, then they'll show like a sophisticated uh, defense of Y, of Y, you know, of, of something different, of holding peculiar or bizarre or, you know, clearly, clearly, um, you know, the opinions that, that they learned through uh, having a lot of time, you know, so this is Pierre Bourdieu's idea of, of uh, cultural capital, of, you know, having the time and the means to acquire these sort of esoteric and unusual beliefs that um, the vast majority of people outside of their circle um, wouldn't express or, or adhere to. But the, the interesting thing about that is that there's oft, often a lot of sort of, um, you know, not necessarily deliberate, but there is some some duplicity because often the beliefs that they espouse, they actually don't um, uh, adhere to to them and their behaviors. This seems similar to handicapping in the evolutionary sense. For example, mm -hmm. a peacock's tail evolves not because it helps with survival, but because it's basically saying like, even though this costs a bunch of energy and hinders my mobility and makes me more visible to predators, my genes are so good that I can still survive this handicap. And it's like, a sexy fitness indicator, despite its handicap, is a luxury belief more similar to that than it is something like, um, I don't know, you gain genuine knowledge like about advanced physics or something, and you can uh, write off these equations that no one else can understand. And because that could equally be a way of showing your intellectual status, right? But we don't tend to do that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good point. I mean. Both um, economics and biology have used these signaling models, and so, yeah, I've I've discussed both of these. I mean, yeah, that's the the peacock example is a good one, and then yeah, in, in economics, um, and, and you know, Pierre Bourdieu, he was a he was a sociologist, but but economists have have sort of used his work as a launchpad for for these sort of economic ideas around around social signaling. And yeah, if you buy a really expensive car, you're there. There is a handicapping component to it. You're saying I'm so rich that I can afford to to expend you know vast amount of resources 
on you know a car that that I probably don't need that that doesn't get me from point A to point B any better than you know a, a Ford Focus or something would, but you know I can expend uh, you know all this money to get it and and it impresses people it sort of lets people know um, where you stand in society, and so um, yeah there there there's uh, there is this sort of um, costly signaling maybe a self handicapping idea to it but I don't know if it's if it is, if it's self handicapping in the sense that like, you're not like evading predators or something the way that starting or, or large peacock tails would, but they are, um, luxury beliefs are honest indicators. I would say, um, you know, some people have said like, well, luxury beliefs, aren't they, you know, you're, if you're just expressing opinions, this is, this is kind of a cheap signal. And I, I agree that like saying words is cheap, but saying them in the right way, in the right order, using the right terminology, having the vocabulary, um, you know, knowing what the issues are and, and how how you should respond to them, that does take time. It takes careful study. It takes the ability to, you know, like read read uh, the the fashionable periodicals, the right op eds, the right podcasts, um, hold the right kind of education and so forth to like be able to communicate in that way. And that is a it is a, a an indicator. It's a costly signal of sort of underlying um, access to resources and education and knowledge. It, it's dependent on time and how much it sets you apart from what the general public believes, right? You you recently wrote an example about this with the term homelessness, which is now moving towards like the unhoused, which is might be the luxury way of saying it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's a perfect example of it. It's you're, you're start, I mean, this is a, a good example, because you're slowly starting to see this shift, where a lot of educated people are, I think they're still uncertain which word is the right one and so i've heard people kind of like they, they say homeless and then they say well homeless or unhoused or they'll say unhoused right. or homeless like they're they're, right. they're trying to like communicate that uh i don't know if this is what everyone's saying but i also don't want to be offensive and so i'm just going to use mm -hmm. both and uh and yeah using right. this term unhoused is a way of of indicating like yeah i whatever i listen to npr and read the new york times and listen you know and and uh, am around other other people who care about social issues um and mm -hmm. it confers status on them but i think like the amount of time that people spend updating language and definitions and you know like steven pinker calls this um the language treadmill the euphemism treadmill of like you know you're constantly changing changing the 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 words but focusing on that doesn't actually like benefit it doesn't materially benefit people who are actually um uh homeless right if you go up to a homeless person and say hey i got good news you're unhoused you're not homeless he's gonna be like oh like thanks like was, i i had a friend so i mentioned earlier i had a friend who who was in prison uh, a couple of years ago i texted him and uh and I, I texted him um hey you're um i have good news for you you're 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 not uh what did i say you're you're not an ex-con anymore you're not a criminal anymore you're a you're justice involved person and uh and he was like you know first he was like you know what, what i don't know if you can swear on this podcast he's like what are, what are you talking about and uh and i told him like hey like this is what people are saying now and uh you know he made some joke about like you and your yell friends whatever and then uh, he said i i have news for you you're not a what do you say you're not a you're not a college graduate anymore you're a classroom involved person uh and so you know, the point is that like just as an involved person doesn't help people like my friend doesn't help anyone who's actually involved <laughs> in the justice system but it does sort of make people look compassionate and sophisticated right. and interesting and educated and so forth so because once upon a time maybe like 30 40 years ago homeless itself was the new term that only academics were using to uh to be like more pc right and then it caught on and the idea is now if you're using the term that's caught on you can no longer distinguish yourself so you need a new term and that's like that's the treadmill that keeps repeating itself 
Yeah. 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 I mean, we can predict that uh, in, in, in some number of years, unhoused will be considered an offensive term and that they'll come up with some some newfangled uh, uh, way to communicate that people are uh, like, you know, that they're homeless. Um, yeah. So so it's uh, it's a lot of sort of useless energy to, to mm-hmm. sort of demonstrate one demonstrate with standing, but doesn't doesn't help anyone. So it's one thing for a luxury belief to emerge as a status indicator to set yourself apart, but why do they so quickly become moralized? So it's not just unhoused is the term that showcases that I'm in the right circles. There's also this element of, and if you're using the old term, this is offensive and this is like a moral error. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an interesting one. I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of a lot of that is just, you know, sort of status concerns. Um, you know, I, I think that there is uh, uh, this, the the person who came up with this idea, the, the name escapes me, but the general idea is that, you know, there's, there's always a, like a certain amount of morality in a community, and that people will always sort of use like invoke morality to um sort of justify themselves or to raise their own status or to undermine others. And nowadays, like a lot of conventional morality is seen as passe or it's seen as um, old fashioned or hokey or something. And so now I think a lot of these newfangled vocabulary, all this stuff, it's just like another way to, to, you know, sort of invoke your, your own status, to raise it, to, to undermine others uh, because you can't really do it in, in other ways anymore. Right. Like you can't, you know, accuse people of whatever, like like the the conventional moral violations of like being a thief or being, um, you know, I don't know, aggressive or something. So, yeah, there's uh, there's just like a new way to to do it. I don't think all luxury beliefs have to be moralized, um, though. I mean, some of them, some of them aren't. I think, um, you know, like like promoting promoting technology is, you know, I, I I've used this example of like, you know, there's a you know, a, a growing number of people who are becoming aware of like the the dangers of of smartphone addiction and all this stuff. And I know there's some debate about it, but a lot of people in tech who, you know, are selling this and promoting the wonders of, you know, all of this, all of this advanced technology, uh, they don't allow screens in their home. They send their kids off to these, um, you know, these, these special schools where the kids use pencil and paper. And meanwhile, like, you know, uh, like the LA County um, uh, school system, I think they gave every kid an iPad. And I was one of the first test schools in LA to to be part of that program. Yeah. And it was a disaster. People were just watching YouTube or playing games in class. Yeah. 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 Of course. Like, yeah, the people who develop this technology, they know how, how appealing it can be, especially to, to young kids, unformed minds. Like, why would you possibly be doing math on your iPad when you can watch videos and play games and stuff? So, yeah, I think that's that's kind of a luxury belief, too, like like espousing the wonders of technology. But meanwhile, you're kind of, a, you know, a Luddite or an ascetic or something at home. And that's I don't think that's necessarily moralized, but but a lot of a lot of the beliefs are. In your view, is this an unconscious process or are people aware that they're trying to do these like one up people with their beliefs. I think most of it is probably unconscious. Um, you know, I I read this article in the New Yorker recently, uh, which said that you know basically cultural capital it, it manifests in different ways. So a hundred years ago, if you could speak Latin, this was an indicator that you were you know a member of the educated class. You went to an expensive, um, you know, uh, uh, esteemed university. 
But if you spoke to, you know, if you, if you went up to someone 100 years ago and said, like, why do you speak Latin? They're not going to say like, oh, it's because, you know, I want to show that I'm better than other people or that I'm smarter or whatever. They might say that because to, 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 to demonstrate their education or something. But I think, you know, they learned it sincerely. They thought that it was a valuable thing that they were doing. And I think that's that's probably true for most luxury beliefs today. Right. I mean, the, the, the example the New Yorker gave, it said, you know, a hundred years ago, that's how they did it. And today, you know, it's uh, if if you can, uh, you know, quote, like queer, a work of literature, that's an indicator of capital today. I don't know if that's better than than learning Latin, but that is, you know, that is uh, an, an expression of cultural capital uh, in the modern age. And I think most people, it's probably unconscious. It's kind of implicit. People just naturally do things that win the esteem and approval of their peers and you know, tend to avoid things that that elicit scorn. Um, so I think a lot of a lot of the behaviors that we do for for status uh, seeking reasons are are mostly unconscious. You know, it's uh, it's a natural. I think it's a natural behavior, but but I I try to make it explicit and draw it out because the people who are the most responsible for you know shaping and influencing culture. Um, I just yeah, they they should. I, I think they have a responsibility to think more about the sort of downstream second order effects of the beliefs that they promote and espouse and, and um, yeah. Some status sig uh, signalers or historical luxuries, you mentioned like clothing and technology, they've fallen out of fashion amongst the elites because now they're pretty accessible to everyone. But others like learning Latin, you could still very much argue that it takes a lot of time and money and investment to do that but no one would really care. So why did, why do some fall out of fashion if they remain reliable indicators? Uh, well, because you don't get status for it anymore. I mean, if you can speak Latin, uh, you know, a few people might be impressed, mm -hmm. but no one's going to confer any kind of accolades or praise on you. But if you, you know, if you, if you champion the, the latest, if you, if you start saying unhoused instead of homeless or, uh, what was the, the, the other one, um, was this, was this, I see the USC flag. Was this at the USC school about, uh, changing field work to practicum? <laughs> I haven't <laughs> heard of that. that. It could yeah, be yeah. Well, they said that field work has, you know, racist connotations. So they, they, they changed it to, to practicum. I think it was the school of social work. I, yeah. So, so anyway, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, using those kinds of terms, um, you know, I don't know, like, basically, people will will respect you, admire you or whatever, if you if you do that, if you change language, then if you um, can do these sort of, you know, speak Latin or or um, or do physics, you mentioned physics earlier, some people right. might be impressed. But I think broadly speaking, now, uh, it's a it, that's not how people um, obtain status. Uh -huh. Okay, so here's a another hypothesis here, then, because if you look at old academic writing, especially in philosophy, like, every third sentence includes a Latin phrase. And it's like just this very pretentious style of writing. And it seems like everyone's in the club and they, they learn the phrases that most people won't understand. And now you can probably moralize that. You can say like, this is exclusionary. So if you take uh, what's still a luxury phrase, it's only used in a certain academic circle, but technically the word is plain English, then there's plausible deniability to it. So it's like you might not know the lingo, but it's not like it's literally in a different language. So you can't say that it's ex it, it's much harder to make an argument that this is an exclusionary practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting. I see. I see what you're saying there. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, there is that sort of delicate balancing act there. And then I think there is a duplicity there, too, because a lot of a lot of these beliefs 
a lot of you know the the holding the correct opinions they they are exclusionary they just don't they just don't realize it i mean yeah yeah like all, all of this the 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 language the sort of euphemism treadmill holding the the right views i mean they are exclusionary in that like if you are not a member of these circles if you didn't have a parent who went to college if you're not exposed to this stuff on a regular basis um, yeah, you're, you're, you're much more likely to, to say, you know, express the, the quote unquote wrong opinion or something and you will be excluded. Um, so yeah, maybe you can't speak, you know, maybe you can't speak Latin and you're not being excluded by that basis, but you used the wrong word or you, um, expressed the wrong opinion about this, this ongoing issue. You know, it was, it was, you were supposed to say this six months ago, but now you're supposed to say that, you know, you, you know, a couple of years ago, you were supposed to support defunding the police and now you're supposed to say reform the police, you know, like these are exclusionary. It's just, um, yeah, they just, I mean, many of them just don't realize it. The second key part of your definition beliefs that also confer harms upon lower status people. These harms, the like language-based exclusionary ones, those don't seem really harmful, but there are others like monogamy you write a lot about that Hmm. do have like more real harms that you can measure over time. Can we talk about that? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. What do you, do you want me to just, you know, discuss or you want to start somewhere in particular? Let's let's overview. Maybe you could even start, um, you, you mentioned, uh, encountering this and this being one of the first at Yale and this Mm. being one of the first thing that sparked that original idea of luxury beliefs. Uh, do you want to tell the story? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so, so there was this uh, this young woman I I, I knew uh, from Yale. You know, she she said, you know, basically we we're having a conversation about you know relationships and you know career and all this stuff. And she said, uh, you know, she thought that that marriage and monogamy was were, they were outdated, and that you know we should we should sort of you know move beyond them. And, uh, and you know, this this to me, you know, this was a novel. <laughs> This is a novel view that I hadn't heard much about before, and I asked her, you know, what she meant. And then I, well, I asked her, like, do, well, do, like, do you plan on getting, like, what do you want to do in your future? And you know, and she's like, well, I'll probably get married, and I'll probably, you know, settle down and have a family. But just because I'm doing it doesn't mean like everyone should do it, or that it's for everyone, or you know, like the. And she said, like, you know, the, the it's just the the institution itself is grounded in patriarchy and so forth. And then I asked her, well, how did you grow up? And, you know, what was your family situation like? And she said, yeah, you know, I grew up with my parents and, you know, my mom and my dad and so on. And so she, you know, and then she she went to Yale and, and you know, she went on to, to law school and now she's a very successful person. And uh, <laughs> so she benefited from this sort of, you know, this this uh, ancient practice and she plans on um, conferring the same benefits to her own children. But her official public position is that people shouldn't do this, uh, despite, you know, she, that, the fact that she received the benefits and that, you know, she plans on on giving it to her own, her own children later. And so, you know, that got me interested in, you know, this this possibility that maybe, uh, you know, the belief that marriage and monogamy are are outdated or should be downplayed or that we should move beyond them. You know, this may be a luxury belief and... But, you know, now I've, you know, I've, I've shared a lot of data on this, you know, indicating that um, if you look at family structures in America uh, in 1960, for example, both um, upper class and working class families, uh, 95% of children in upper class and working class families in 1960 were raised by both of their birth parents. So, you know, class was not a predictor at all for a kid for what kind of family structure they had. But if you fast forward to 2005, 
uh, for the upper class, it dropped to 85%. So it was 95%, and then it took a slight dip down to 85%. But for working class families, it went from 95% and plummeted down to 30%, such that now if you grow, you know, go to low-income communities in America, um, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, any kids really raised by their mom and their dad. Um, you know, oftentimes it's, you know, single parents or maybe maybe like uh, step families or maybe multiple step families uh, if their parents have been, you know, sort of divorced. And sometimes it's not even step. It's just, you know, the mom has a boyfriend who's living with them. And sometimes he's just the dad for a year or two. And then, you know, the mom, they break up and move on. Um, sometimes they're raised by their grandparents. I had friends who were raised by their grandparents too. So, I mean, yeah. It's so, so, but, but the thing is the, that the people who, are the most sort of vocal and adamant that the institution should be outdated or the institution is outdated and should be dismantled uh, are the very people who are the most likely to get married and the least likely to get divorced. I mean, that was the the sort of the common opinion, uh, at least the most sort of common vocal opinion that I saw. Maybe there are a lot of people who who do believe in monogamy and marriage, but they're just more um, restrained. You know, they withhold this opinion. You know, I, I've told this story uh, uh, before. A friend of mine, he um, he he goes to another university, but he said that you know when he sets his dating app radius uh, to just around the university, um, you know, so eighteen to twenty-two year old women around the university, it was uh, he said that you know something like a third of the the bios, you know, if you read the bio, it's, you know, it says things like poly or casual or open to anything or whatever. And then um, when he extended the radius to include the outskirts of the university, which is a more sort of blue collar area. Uh, he said about half the women were single moms. And so, you know, the like what, um, you know, poly and open relationships and complete sexual freedom looks very different depending on the kind of class that you're in and the kind of people that you're around. And yeah, this has, you know, this has detrimental effects on on young children. Um, and I think like people often overlook kids. You know, kids are, you know, they like they can't vote. They don't have much power. They're uh you know, like like Marx would say, they're a class uh, in themselves, but are not a class for themselves. They can't sort of unite and and uh, demonstrate on behalf of their own political interests. So, you know, kids often get get overlooked, but um, they're the ones who who suffer uh, a lot, and and women too suffer a lot from for from these kinds of um, arrangements. But uh, yeah, marriage and monogamy, they're still they're still uh, you know uh, widely practiced among educated people, and far less so uh among the less less educated and the idea is that those tr shifts over time were causal like the luxury belief might emerge within academia or certain elite circles and then over time it shifts the culture and then it's those at the at the bottom of the socioeconomic rung who are most impacted by that cultural shift right yeah yeah i mean generally speaking so um you know, if you're a if you're a smart, educated, conscientious person, and you're in an environment where you know the the norms are unclear, uh, you know you're better equipped to answer questions like you know how do I live a fulfilling life? What steps should I take to find meaning and and success? And you know what kind of family should I form to ensure that my kids uh, are set up for success uh, themselves? Uh, and so, you know, up until, you know, uh, what, 60, 70 years ago, the, like, everyone just sort of followed the same cultural life script of, you know, marriage, monogamy, getting married, having kids and that, that uh, kind of structure. But then once the, the norms were, were undermined and loosened by, uh, you know, primarily, uh, educated people, college educated people, people who were, you know, sort of upper middle class and above, 
Um, that same group, you know, they were well equipped to answer those questions. But then the people for who, you know, who are who are less academically able, less conscientious and so forth, um, without the sort of cultural life scripts, the guardrails, the sort of um, you know, strong norms, they're more likely to to slip into um, situations where, you know, they 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 may have kids out of wedlock you know, that they didn't plan or intend to, or, you know, maybe, uh, well, for, for young men in particular, I mean, a lot of young guys when, you know, when there are strong sort of social norms around them, you know, to find a partner to get married and settle down, they'll do that. But in the absence of that, like, they're the game for, you know, men from like 17 to, you know, until, you know, until they're physically no longer able is to just like, let's see how many women I can have sex with and betray as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And so you see a lot of that. I mean, you see that in colleges and in sort of educated circles too, like men behaving very poorly. But in uh, in lower income communities, like it's 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 often uh, even more pronounced, and the women there, you know, suffer suffer the most for it, and 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 the children too. So yeah, it's uh, yeah again, like sexual sexual freedom looks different depending on the environment that you're in, the class that you're in. And uh, yeah, so so the, the the sort of the norms that were undermined, uh, sort of loosened restrictions, and now you have you you do have more freedom. Uh, you know, David Brooks wrote this article in the Atlantic, um, I think last year, and it was something like you know if you, if you wanted to summarize the last sixty years of American life, you you would say something like, you know, like life for adults has gotten better and life for children has gotten worse. I don't know if I completely agree with that, that life for adults has gotten better, but it has gotten freer. Like, they, you know, adults do have more options. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's maybe that's better. But for for children, life has inarguably gotten gotten worse. I think there's something to that. I had never met anyone seriously advocating for polyamory before I got to Harvard. So it it, it does seem like to be this luxury. Not even at USC? Not at USC, but like I said, right. I was more introverted okay. and I, I okay. came more out of my shell more recently. Um, okay. But all right. Well, also at USC, I, th- I think this is the key difference, actually. At USC, this was undergrad. So everyone is just on Tinder and hmm. messing around. But at Harvard here, th- these are older grad students I'm talking to. They are in a relationship, but it's a polyamorous relationship. So at USC, just no one thought about commitment at all, really. And then here it's yeah. like, we're committed, but we're also sexually free and open. Yeah, I see. You know, at, I at see. USC, when I was on Tinder, I noticed something interesting. So I would get my matches at a certain level of attractiveness. And then if I went outside the college bubble, like if I was swiping in another town or something, um, physically, my matches would be much more attractive. But these were students or these were girls who weren't going to school or just weren't doing that much with their lives. And how I interpreted that was something like to them, it was more attractive that like I'm going to USC and that's like a big status signal. So it boosted my attractiveness relative to what it is at USC where like, this is something everyone has. So it's almost canceled out. Mm. Yeah. 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 Of course. Like that's, um, yeah, the, the, the school, I mean, like I was at Yale, right. And I saw this too. And, and, you know, you, you probably, not, you know, at, at Harvard, I'm sure you, you, you know, if you were on Tinder, you'd kind of see a similar kind of pattern of like different matches based on, you know, how, how impressed the girls might be by where you go to school. Yeah. There was a study, um, uh, 
uh, I think 2019, which found that, yeah, this this was not like the brand name of the school, but rather whether a man had a master's degree versus a bachelor's degree. And the master's degree mm -hmm. got like twice as many, twice as many matches. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's that's interesting. So so only at Harvard yeah. did you did you hear about? Well, I mean, only like Yale was the first time I heard about poly polyamory. I mean, yeah, this is like these these universities are the the sort of center of of uh you know uh whatever i don't know what you want to call it sort of uh you know unique unique sexual uh uh positions and uh yeah that they will you know they're they they start there and then they write about them in in popular media outlets and then it's sort of depicted in in pop culture and in movies and tv shows and then eventually right like eventually like low-income communities are going to be like oh let's let's try this poly thing and then you know it's going to mm -hmm. look different it's going to look different for them if like a woman has three boyfriends uh in in cambridge massachusetts versus if a woman has you know three boyfriends you know, like where i grew up in red bluff california uh the the kind of uh experience that woman's going to have in her children uh it's going to look much different mm -hmm. so there are a lot of interesting evolutionary dynamics at play with our mating psychology here one thing you mm -hmm. might think is that the natural drive, especially for men, might be just go impregnate as many people as possible, have as many offspring as possible. And then it's only uh, society and culture that constrains us with monogamy. But we know there's also evolutionary reasons for pair bonding to emerge. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the, those both, um, I think that the way that people are, are are attempting to thread that needle is is through poly right like you have this mm -hmm. sort of pair bond you have this main partner and you know if you're if you're a, a male in that situation like i would love to like i don't know if anyone's done the done date like research on on poly couples but i would love to see uh the like number of attempts each partner has made to uh hook up with a side partner like you know and then and then how how you know and then just generally like the number of partners they, that they're successfully hook up with i mean i don't know what i would mm -hmm. predict for um well for attempts i would i would imagine that the male uh -huh. like in, in heterosexual poly couples the, the male's gonna just try more often to have yeah, side i would partners. think more attempts for males but higher success yeah. rate relative to number of attempts for females yeah, yeah, exactly. But then in terms of like overall number of side partners, yeah, maybe maybe it would balance out or just because just the fact that the male's trying so much, he may be able to get a get a get a few and then and then the woman, you know, probably probably can more easily obtain a side partner. Um, and then also just, you know, I, I, my guess is that like a lot of these poly situations, it's just like the guy who wants to, um, you know, wants to wants to to cheat without without it being cheating um mm -hmm. yeah and so yeah like the pair bonding thing is um yeah i mean you can you know it's 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 a strong strong uh, evolutionary impulse i think but uh you know we we sort of have have these opposing opposing feelings and and i think the pair bond often becomes more pronounced right when uh when couples have children um, right. you know part of the pair bonding mechanism is like decreasing testosterone among men like men who have a stable monogamous partner, their testosterone tends to decline. And then once they have children, it tends to decline even more. And that just keeps them sort of even more committed and less interested in, you know, being aggressive and sexually um, mm -hmm. uh, 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 interested in, in other other partners. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's like right now you're seeing, uh, yeah, a lot more, I think, of, um, you know, the pair bonding be, be, being what, like less, less prevalent. 
I recently did a podcast with Sue Carter. She's a neuroendocrinologist, and she did a lot of the seminal work on oxytocin's re- uh, role in pair bonding in prairie bulls. Are you familiar with any of that? Yeah, yeah, I've seen some of that work. So w- one thing that surprised me in that conversation is that so so prairie bulls are monogamous. Uh, once they mate, they'll partner with their first mate, generally partner for life. They'll raise the children together. They'll cuddle together. Uh, Sue Carter showed that all of this is oxytocin based. So if you give them drugs, oxytocin blockers, the pair bond won't form, even if they mm-hmm. have sex and even if they're exposed to each other in exactly the same way. Uh, but later with DNA testing, so this was back in the 80s before DNA testing was invented. When it was invented in the 90s, they found out that the prairie bull fathers who were monogamously paired like in a single family unit and raising these children, they weren't all fathers of the offspring that they were taking care of. So that Mm -hmm. means that some percentage of the bull females were like sneaking off and finding a mate. Uh, And so, so basically they were socially monogamous. It was almost like they were married to and living with their first sexual partner, but then they were sometimes getting impregnated with others. So, so they were basically poly, like they had a pair bond, but they were sexually free. And mm. some of the people I was talking to about this with uh, the, the poly people I met at, at Harvard, they were arguing for it almost on evolutionary lines. Like they were saying all of the benefits for it that you get, that, that all of the benefits of pair bonding that you get can be achieved if it's merely social monogamy, but sexual monogamy is unwarranted, they said. And I wasn't sure what to make of that. I mean, obviously you have something like jealousy, which has an evolved impulse against sexual freedom in a paired partnership. What do you think of that? I mean, like if, if like, basically I think if you're, if you're like a, an adult, and and you're not trying to to push your lifestyle on other people whatever but i think like once kids are involved i mean there's just like inarguable evidence like this is consistent that when children live in a household with adults that aren't their birth parents they're they're anywhere from well i mean like some evidence suggests like they're eight times more likely to be abused some some suggest like 10 times more likely to be you know physically abused and much more likely to be emotionally abused um they're more likely to be like killed by a step parent, especially a stepfather. Uh, you know, mother's boyfriends are often like a serious threat opposed to the child. And again, like if you're like if if you're like the if the poly, like if the the polycule is made up of like a bunch of Harvard grads and you know some of them have kids, there's probably like not a lot of overt physical abuse going on. Although I, I could imagine right. there would be some 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 neglect or some emotional abuse maybe. But and I, you know, I should if, add that um, it, yeah. it does seem like. It's a luxury belief in the sense that none of them are seriously considering this to be like a proper life strategy once they get married and have kids. They were all saying like, I'm planning to be monogamous once I have kids. This is just for my 20s. So that's like only possible now that we have contraception. So like before that, it would never have been possible. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, and if they yeah, I mean, if this belief spreads, then yeah, yeah, it's it'll be much more detrimental i think for mm-hmm. for for other communities and it's interesting that they're arguing on evolutionary grounds because um you know you like i mean i'm imagining a lot of these people are probably smart they're aware of like the naturalistic fallacy 
and you know trying to trying to draw morality from from evolution is very fraught business because there's a lot of ugly things that happen among animals that you would never try to justify on evolutionary grounds for human behavior um you know like like hostility and aggression and mate guarding and like you know if you look at how like male chimpanzees treat female chimpanzees you know you never see like oh like this is you know this is what they do so we should do it too um yeah that's uh yeah. And, and the jealousy yeah. thing, you know, I heard this story, there was a, a an entrepreneur, CEO, something like that. He, he told this story on a podcast about how he was trying this poly or open relationship thing. And he like, it was a very like, like kind of gut wrenching story of how he said his he, he was like in a, in a bathroom. And in the room next door, or the room like, you know, between them, uh, he could hear his wife um, hooking up with another man. And he said he like felt this intense jealousy and nausea overcome him. And he was like retching, throwing up in the toilet. And he was just like overcome with like just the idea of, of someone doing this with his wife. And uh, and he was telling himself he just had to push through this. Like there was something pathologically wrong with him. Like you shouldn't be feeling jealous about this. That's not natural. There's something wrong with you. Why would you be jealous? It's like, you know, it's pathetic and so on and so forth. Trying to like, like trying to like fight his own bodily reaction to what he was hearing uh and so it's like i don't know that doesn't sound like a, a pleasant yeah, experience it, it does there seem like a very natural it, response although interestingly yeah. one of the girls i was talking to about this with she said that when she gets jealous it's actually a turn-on for her because she's saying like oh well it would be a bigger problem if i wasn't getting jealous because that would mean i don't care so it's like the fact that i get jealous means that this like almost in proportion to my amount of jealousy is how much I care about this person. And then she was saying it was a combination of that realization. And then the idea of like this social monogamy, like, yeah, but I'm the main, <laughs> his main girl. So suck it. Basically. She, I so wonder, she... like, I, I think that a lot of this like may go back to our earlier conversation about disparities in higher education and just generally among like successful people among like, you know, uh, you know, people people like sort of look at the 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 top, you know, the top um, rung of the social and economic ladder in society, and it's overwhelmingly male, mostly old, aging out. In, in twenty years, things are going to change pretty quickly. Um, but at the moment, if you look at people like under thirty five who are like educated, you know, uh, on a on a promising uh, track in terms of their careers. Uh, and so on, like there's there's a there's a lopsided gap where there's more women than men. And I think a lot of the poly mm -hmm. casual stuff, like a lot of it is just a cope. It's just like people trying to like navigate an environment in which there are fewer and fewer um, sexually, romantically desirable men. And so, right. yeah, this is like a way for them to 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 you know deal with that where a lot of a lot of guys are just having like multiple girlfriends and um right. i think there's like i'd also like to see that too that 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 data i mean it seems obvious to me that it would be like most of the poly relationships it's mm -hmm. a man with multiple girlfriends because you know just generally like the research shows that they're more interested in variety so like how many polycules are made up of like men with multiple female partners versus women with multiple male partners um right. and people are going to match based on status so if mm -hmm. one way of measuring status is university education and 60% are female moving towards two thirds. That's a two to one ratio. So you're just expecting yeah. like women will either be forced to put up with a relation to either compete for one man. And then there's going to be like the other third of women who are left out or to do some sort of poly like two to one thing or to downgrade their standards. So they're not getting a university educated man. And it seems yeah. like poly out of those three options 
is looking like a better option for a lot of yeah. women. I think that's right. I mean, there was a, there was a great line. I think this was in How the Mind Works, uh, where Pinker says something like, uh, "Like you know, most women would rather share John F. Kennedy than uh, have Bobo the Clown all to themselves." Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, that was like the '90s when he wrote that. But they, so the the references may be slightly outdated. But like the idea is like, yeah, I think most women would rather share. I don't know Channing Tatum or whoever the you know over the hot male equivalent is today versus like you know some some you know unattractive mediocre guy. Um, and so yeah, this is this is like a, a sort uh-huh. of a, an interesting consequence of 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 the Lost Boys phenomenon. Right. Well, I guess if you're looking at it through evolutionary lines, the the dream from the female perspective would be something like share that high value male for one night, get impregnated, but then pair bond with someone else to take care of the child. So that would be like cuckolding. Yeah. Although that, that strategy doesn't seem to be like supported. I, I guess like the, you know, that was the kind of um, yeah, the cuckolding strategy in evolutionary psychology. There was a lot of debate, contentious discussion around it. But I think now the the idea is like like th- that that actually didn't happen very often, and mm-hmm. so now I think the the there's the like, converging evidence on the the mate switching hypothesis that uh, that women actually would like they they would really rather have um, uh, a high status male all to themselves like they would like the genes from the male they'd like his care his attention and so forth um, and yeah there's like research on this about. Um, you know, like the vast majority of women who have marital affairs, you know, I guess like the, the, the cuckolding hypothesis would be like, you know, they would, they would go to sleep with some rock star and then like have their mediocre husband and his resources or something to take care of it. But actually most women fall in love with their affair partners, like women who have affairs, something like 70% of them uh, fall in love with their affair partners compared with men where it's only about 30%. You know, most women cheat because they're unhappy with their husbands, but most men who cheat uh, are, are not actually unhappy with their wives. Um, and so, so yeah, it seems like, like women really do want, uh, you know, the male they want, uh, they want, they, they, they would rather not have to like, you know, have like to be some, someone's like, even, even if you're the main girl, like, I don't think most women enjoy the idea of like, mm-hmm. oh, this, this, this high status man that I really like is, is going to go hook up with someone else. And then they do the, the intellectual acrobatics of, mm-hmm. oh, well, I'm jealous. So that means I care about it. Like, can't you just care? Do you need to like. <laughs> test it by feeling jealous like that that to me doesn't sound like a completely healthy situation that's very interesting okay so it sounds like you could make an argument a rational argument for like why this is okay in your 20s while you have contraception but then later we should all gravitate towards monogamy for the sake of the kids but then the downside to that is if you have a whole society of people just being poly in their 20s or hooking up casually in their 20s then there's going to be a non-insignificant portion of those who like get pregnant and become single mothers and it'll just degrade the norm of fatherhood and that'll be harmful for many future generations of our children yeah yeah i think that's right i mean there's uh uh, there's yeah there's a lot of like behaviors and practices that you know educated and affluent people can engage in and not suffer the same level of consequence um you know they they have the 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 sort of access to resources and social capital and all these things that even like not only they're more equipped to to experiment with novel relationship arrangements but even if like there's even if they make a mistake 
uh, it looks very different for them than it does for someone uh, in a in a low income environment in a low income community who you know like just in a much more unstable situation. Like they can't practice those same set of behaviors, and so if those behaviors become promoted and normalized and and, and um, uh, you know, it, it's just a much yeah, it it just looks much different, and so. Yeah, but I think a lot of people, you know, who if they if they make choices they are not entirely certain are right, it becomes much more important for them to push these choices on other people and to get other people to agree with it because they need to they need to sort of like justify it to themselves that they're doing the right thing. So they have to like, you know, get other people to to get on board with it. Oh, that's very Freudian. Yeah, so, right, so I guess if, if you were if you got pregnant and you wanted to keep the child and you were destined to become a single mother, if you were wealthy, you could still care for that child very well. But then if you were a struggling single mother, it'd be much more difficult. Although, you yeah. know, you know, interestingly, you mentioned um, town you grew up in median income of twenty seven thousand. Uh, I think that's so that's less than most Ph.D. students make, at least if you're at a private school. And yeah, PhD students here are complaining that we're not paid enough and maybe relative to uh, the opportunity cost of someone doing the same like very technical job, especially like if you if you have good coding or statistical abilities doing research then you could probably get paid way more in industry. But they they use very extreme language. They say like this wage is unlivable. And growing up with my mom, like she made less than I do now as a PhD student to support us both. So it's, yeah. it, it does go back to that idea of like, I don't know, something like culture shock, like realizing that I have a very different perspective on money than a lot of my peers. Yeah. Yeah. That is, uh, I mean, I, I heard those kinds of, yeah, I heard those kinds of opinions too. And yeah, for me, it was, it was often infuriating because yeah, it was same, same situation. Like you're, yeah, I, I understand that like relative to many of your peers who go on into tech or consulting or finance, you're not earning, you know, you're not earning the same amount, but you are earning like a livable wage. People live on this wage all the time. Like the, you know, the, 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 the custodian who cleans the halls of Harvard is living on that wage, but you can't like, why do you think that just because you know you have a fancy degree, like you're a student there, you get to, I don't know. The whole thing right. is just very, he's more likely to have kids kidding. and a family to support yeah, with that yeah. wage. Somehow he's doing yeah. it, but uh, you know, because you, you know, most, most of the people who complain about this, I would imagine grew up relatively well off. So for them, mm -hmm. you know, they just think they, you know, there's an entitlement there. We talked about not wanting to commit the uh, the naturalistic fallacy just because something was evolved doesn't mean it's morally right. But we also know that there were evolutionary forces shaping our moral cognition. Uh, I find I find it fascinating, like some game theory models, for example, like something a game like tit for tat, uh, where it can turn out to be the most mathematically optimal strategy to play in something that looks like fairness but of course it's just the ai like converging on whatever is maximizing payoff so that seems to be one example where the the two are one in the same like what you evolve towards and what the moral norms become are both maximizing like some some payoff yeah 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 that's interesting i mean it's uh the, the it's hard right like to I, I guess like evolution and and those kinds of models and the research, it kind of shows what's possible. 
mm-hmm. but in terms of like trying to ground your morality in in any of those like oh like this tit for tat model shows this like then therefore this is what you should do like maybe if that's what you want to do if that's what you think like a good way to live is then sure but it's not like uh, i think it can it can inform your morality but i don't think you can like necessarily base it on there on, on that entirely i mean you know because you, you i mean you could see like um I mean, you can, yeah, you can see like where, where that might go wrong too, where some models mm-hmm. suggest like behaving in a very selfish way or something like, uh, like the, the, the dictator game, right? Like there, there's no reason you should give money to the other person. And like often, like most people do give some money and they, you know, they have to actually like override their, inst- like their natural instinct to keep the money. And there was, a, there was some funny, re- I, I don't know if this is replicated, but you know, the research a few years ago about how you know, uh, economics majors, like students who were economics majors were were uh, more stingy, more selfish in economic games because they had learned, right? Like, oh, the rational actor model is to not, you know, to, to basically be selfish because that's how you're supposed to be. Um, and so, you know, the individual payoff is good for them. But I don't know if like, you know, you want to if you if, if like that's the best way to to, to base uh, your sort of you know personal. Because, because a lot of these economic games are like one offs where the rational option wouldn't be sustainable in in a repeated game. So dictator game you mentioned, that's the one where you are told like you can have ten dollars and split it with a person however you want. But if they reject it, you both get nothing. And then if you say, mm-hmm. okay, like I keep nine and they get one for the other person, it's like, hey, it's a free dollar. If you throw it away, you both get nothing. So you might as well accept the dollar, but it's almost mm-hmm. like a pride thing. You'd rather say, screw you. I'm not a person you can just give like such unfair treatment to probably with the idea that if they did accept it, and if it is someone that you're going to have repeated interactions with, you don't want to come off as a pushover. So that's the ultimatum game. Okay. Uh, the dictator game is is like it's it's even more simple than that. It's like here you have ten dollars. Do you want to give Adam any of it? And like it's just <laughs> do I give him any? And most people, I think, I think like the average amount people give something like a third, like something like thirty percent ish. Uh, in the dictator game, which is which is stunning. Like, why would you give anything at all? But um, yeah, if, if apparently if you're if you're an economics major, you kind of learn about these things. Then you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't have to give anything. Okay, right. like no. That's, but I guess that's if third. you're a psychologist, you might give yeah. more because you're th- you're thinking along the lines of, oh, that what I, what I do in this game is basically signaling uh, something about me. And again, if if it's yeah. someone you're going to see again in your life, you probably want to treat them right, just so they just for the sake of reciprocity, even if you're purely selfish. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and that is like, uh, yeah, we, we evolved in these small tight knit communities where reputation was extremely valuable. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, like in some of my own research, you know, I used, uh, do, do you know the cyberball paradigm? No, you know, this, like it's, it's a, it's a, you know, very simple online interactive game. You basically want to elicit, um, uh, like, like, you know, uh, uh, social rejection and the negative feelings associated with that. And it's just, you're, you're playing an online ball game, like a ball tossing game with two other players on a computer screen. And, you know, in the inclusion condition, you just, you know, you're passing the ball regularly, the other two players, you're, you're interacting, you're passing the ball back and forth with them. And in the exclusion condition, uh, you're completely excluded from the game. I think you get to toss the ball once in the beginning. And then for the remainder of the game, you're just sitting there watching these other two players toss the ball back and forth. Like massive effect sizes in terms of like people's like thwarted self-esteem and reduced feelings of meaning and all this stuff. And it's like, it's silly. It's like a two minute game. Um, but yeah, this is like, you know, taps into like our evolved need to belong and like ostracism and exclusion and reputation, all of those things. It's, we're so sensitive to it that even in these like 
you know, online interactive games with two strangers can elicit such strong negative emotions in people. Like I didn't, I didn't believe it was going to work. Like I've seen, like there's so much research on using that game and, uh, you know, psychology, there's some replication issues. And so like, is this really going to work for my studies? And it worked. Like it was amazing to me that it it elicited that much sort of negative emotion in people. So, um, any, anyway, yeah, I'll just say that like, yeah, I I don't know, like using, using evolutionary models for morality. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. You mentioned that you're currently working on a book. Is there anything yeah. you want to plug before we wrap up? Uh oh. Um, I mean, you can go to my Substack, uh, robkhenderson.substack.com. You can follow me on Twitter at robkhenderson. Yeah, the book will be out uh, spring next year. It's uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's a memoir, and, and and it sort of delves deeper into to some of my personal experiences. But there's um, a lot of social and cultural commentary, uh, some of the stuff you and I have been discussing, luxury beliefs and and um, observations around class and um, status too. Thank you very much for your time, Rob. Thanks, Adam.